Welcome to the Trinity Church Aberdeen podcast, where you can listen to our most recent sermons. To find out more about who we are and what we believe, visit trinityaberdeen.org.uk. Well, please turn back with me to Psalm 47. Now, we've just spent some time singing together, but why do we sing to God? One of the greatest joys of those initial easings of COVID restrictions was the day when we were finally all able to come together again as a church family and sing to God. I don't think that's something I truly appreciated before, the chance for God's people to gather together in one voice and sing his praises. We all know there's something beautiful about that, something that fills us with joy and hope. There are many people who, although they wouldn't call themselves spiritual or religious by any means, still occasionally come to church just to hear the singing. Just a few weeks ago, I was sat near the front here during an evening service, just feeling the full thrust of joyous praise from behind me, and it was beautiful. But how often do we really stop? I wonder why that is. Now, over the years, I've been witness to many uh, impassioned discussions uh, about how we praise God with our singing, um, discussions usually focusing on what type of instruments we should be using or how modern or traditional the words should be. Now, whether you enjoy the organ or the electric guitar, that's all just a load of superficial babble if we aren't clued into why we even bother to sing in the first place. The book of Psalms is a treasure trove because it teaches us both how and why we are to worship. It reveals to us what the attitude of our hearts should be when lifting our voices in praise to God. Psalm 47 tells us that we should praise God because he is a great king over all the earth. I don't know what your your thoughts are on the idea of kingship, We're in the north of Scotland here, so I'm going to guess that opinion in the room on the topic of monarchy might be a little bit uh, divided, to say the least. Um, I'll be honest, I I grew up in the Republic of Ireland, so the idea of a king always felt like something that belonged more to the realm of myths and fairy tales rather than everyday life. I know for myself, I can find myself thinking about this image of God as a king as just a little bit fanciful sometimes. But the king we see in Psalm 47 is not some mere fairy tale character or political figurehead. His rule is absolute and extends over all the earth, and so all the peoples of the earth are called to worship him in joy, fear, and wisdom. I only have two points for you tonight. I want to look at what the psalm has to say about the great king and his praising people. So first of all, the great king. God's universal kingship is the core idea of the psalm. It's the reason given for why all the peoples of the world are called to clap their hands and shout to him with joy in verses 1 and 2. For the Lord, the most high, is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. 
right up front, we run into an aspect of God's kingship that might make us feel a little bit uncomfortable. Praise him with joy, sure, we love that, but why does he have to be feared? Fear-inducing leaders hardly inspire joy, do they? When we think of fear-inducing leaders, we think of men like Vladimir Putin, those with great power, try and use that power to strong-arm the weak into submission. But that's not the type of king that the psalmist has in mind. The book of Psalms is a compilation of writings from across different stages of Israel's history, and most of them, probably including the ones written by the sons of Korah, uh, came about during the time of King David. Israel was a nation surrounded by powerful kings who would have loved to invade and conquer them. They needed a king of their own, one who would strike fear into the hearts of such men and show the superpowers of Babylon or Assyria or Egypt that the promised land was not theirs to conquer. The king who could inspire the right kind of fear was the king who could keep his people safe. And no matter our opinions on contemporary monarchs, we all love that idea of strong but noble leadership. Our stomachs may turn at mention of Vladimir Putin, but our hearts soar when we see Vladimir Zelensky choosing to stay in Kiev as Russian forces invaded. We all need heroes. Heroic leadership is something that we adore, and when we adore something, it leads us to worship. We'll touch more on what this sort of mingling of joy and fear looks like later on, but for now, keep that idea of a heroic leader in your mind as we think about God as king in this psalm. We see how the great king fights for his people in verses 3 and 4. These verses remember the days when Israel had to fight to secure their place in the promised land, but also to whom that victory truly belonged. He subdued peoples under us and nations under our feet. He chose our heritage for us, the pride of Jacob whom he loves. This victory belonged to God. Israel were the ones fighting, but God gave them the victory the way a father might give a gift to his child. Now, what does the psalmist mean when he's talking about heritage and the pride of Jacob? Well, running throughout the psalm is the thread of a promise that God made to Abraham all the way back in the book of Genesis. Uh, in case you don't know, uh, Abraham was one of the patriarchs of the nation of Israel. His grandson, Jacob, would go on to have his name changed to Israel, and then Jacob's sons would father the 12 tribes of that nation. But when Abraham was in his 70s, he was still childless. But God promised that his family would become a great nation through whom all the nations of the world would be blessed. And that name, Abraham, means father of a multitude of nations. So this promise unfolds in two stages. The promise of a land for the nation of Israel, and then blessing that would flow out of that land and into the rest of the world. So the royal agenda of Psalm 47's great king is the unfolding of that promise. The psalmist can look back into Israel's history and rejoice at the truth of how faithful the king has been. Verses 3 and 4 are only a brief summary of years of struggle and toil 
for Israel. The odds stacked against them were insurmountable in human terms, and yet the king's promise endured. This king didn't hang back in the throne room or the fortified bunker waiting on news from the front line. He led the charge. He brought down city walls and made the sun stand still in the sky. He split seas and made rulers tremble because he would not break the promise that he made to his people. And the king who could perform such mighty deeds is rightly to be feared by those who would set themselves up as rival powers. For his people, though, his power and might is something to rejoice in. His victory is their victory, too. And this victorious praise crescendos spectacularly uh, in verses 5 to 7. God has gone up with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. Sing praises to God, sing praises. Sing praises to our King, sing praises. For God is the King of all the earth. Sing praises with a psalm. The language here is that of coronation. The king is ascending to his throne, accompanied by trumpets and loud voices. The people are called to praise their king in recognition of how he has fought for and protected them. Now, Israel's history was full of less than stellar kings, as is our own, but their one true ruler was the great king, the most high, the king of the promise. But what about that second aspect of the promise that God made to Abraham? Israel would receive a promised land, but then somehow the whole world would be blessed through them. How did that unfold? When the psalm was written, only the promise of the land had been fulfilled. Israel was surrounded by nations who despised them and their God, and yet the psalmist in verses 8 and 9 writes about the nations gathering to worship the Lord. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. The princes of the people gather as the people of the God of Abraham. For the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. Even back in verse 1, it wasn't just Israel who were called to worship God, but all peoples. The princes of verse 9 aren't just the next generation of Israel's leadership. They belong to the Gentile nations, the surrounding nations, the non-Jewish nations. Their shields that belong to God are a metaphor for their kingship, a recognition that these rulers ultimately owe their authority and their existence to him. Gentiles gathering as God's people, the people of the God of Abraham. Those same enemies that the king subdued back in verses 3 and 4 are now welcomed into his kingdom. And the fulfillment of that promise is spoken about as if it's happening in real time. That's a bit jarring, because the psalmist would have known as well as anyone else that this great gathering had not been fulfilled at the time that he was writing. We see brief glimpses of it throughout the Old Testament uh, in figures like Rahab from Jericho or Ruth from Moab, Gentiles who entered into the family of Abraham. 
On the whole, however, the Gentile nations remained starkly at odds with God. Why then does the psalmist write as if this promise is being fulfilled? Well, this is one of those moments in the Psalms that can rattle our brains a little bit as modern-day English-speaking readers. Hebrew poetry is its own rich literary tradition that often works in ways that we don't expect. One of the most striking examples is the way it seems to look back to the future. The poetic passages of the Bible, the, the Psalms and the prophets, often speak about future events in the past tense. It's a way of showing the certainty of God's promises, that whatever he says will happen cannot be prevented from happening. The great king's promises are so secure that we can speak about them as if they've already come true. Verses 8 and 9 are a prime example of this. To the psalmist, the day he was describing was seen through a kind of fog. His best efforts to describe it in poetry only capture a shadow of what was actually to come. We, by the grace of God, live in a day and age where we have a fuller picture of what this looks like. The way that Israel would bring blessing to the entire world was through one very specific descendant of Abraham. The great king came as a carpenter from a backwater town in that same promised land. He received a cross instead of a throne and was adorned with a crown of thorns. Jesus' death hardly looked like the kind of royal victory that we read about in this psalm. But it was the great battlefield that made such a victory possible. On the cross, Jesus secured the ultimate eternal heritage for his people, subduing the final enemies of sin and death. The land promised to his people has now overflowed the boundaries of the ancient kingdom of Israel to encompass a new heaven and a new earth. Verse 5 tells us God has gone up with a shout. Now that's not just coronation language, that's ascension language. Jesus rose from the dead and ascended in triumph. That was his coronation moment. One day he will reappear with a shout and a sound of a trumpet. On that day, all nations, Jew and Gentile, will bow before him as king. And we are those same Gentiles we read about in verses 8 and 9. As the gospel of Jesus spreads, we are being gathered into God's kingdom. When we bow the knee before him, his victory becomes our victory. This is the great king of Psalm 47. Triumphant in victory, powerful over all the world, protecting his people as he gathers even more from across the globe. As his people, we can join the psalmist in singing his song of praise. But how do we do that? Well, thankfully, the psalmist doesn't just show us the great king. He also shows us what it means to be his praising people. To worship is human. 
David Foster Wallace was an American writer who, although not a Christian, was still very attuned to the culture around him. Wallace said that there is no such thing as not worshipping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. Now, if Psalm 47's portrayal of God as the great king is anything to go by, we don't even really get that much of a choice. We are to praise the Lord, the Most High, just as the psalmist was calling Israel to do. Now, in many ways, our worship today looks very different to that of the sons of Korah. We don't go to the temple or to the synagogue. We come to church. Here at Trinity, we tend to use piano and violin and cello more than we use harp and lyre. All that being said, we have the same God, the same great king. So we should follow the lead of the psalmist and how we are to praise him. What does the psalmist say should characterize the praise of God's people? Well, notice how the words joy and fear sit almost one on top of the other uh, in verses 1 and 2. As we touched on earlier, joining both fear and joy together as the fitting response to God's kingship can strike us as being a little strange. As a culture, we often set these two emotions at odds with one another, as if the presence of one might stifle the other. This psalm doesn't just say that these emotions can exist together, but that they must when God is the focus of our emotions. All the peoples of the world are called to worship God with joy because he is to be feared. That's a a staggering but a beautiful paradox. Uh, Our darkened, sinful understanding doesn't like to try and hold these two emotions in tandem, so it just splits them. And that's why psalms like this are so helpful in guiding our worship. God is to be feared. That's clear from what we read here. God is love, but he's not tame, as C.S. Lewis might put it. He is the great and powerful king. His throne is holy and his reign is absolute. There is no corner of the earth that does not belong to him and no inhabitant of the earth that will not one day have to pay him homage. He subdues his enemies, and yet, despite all the images that come to our minds when we think of conquering kings, he also throws the gates of his kingdom wide open to welcome those same enemies in. And remember, we were those enemies. We were the Gentile nations, and yet, here we are, gathered under the throne of the God of Abraham, rejoicing. Our joy doesn't come from sidelining thoughts about God's kingship, but rather through remembering that we now share in the great king's victory because of his grace. And this reverent, joyous praise can't be contained. The psalmist certainly doesn't keep it to himself. He wastes no time in beckoning all peoples to clap their hands in verse 1. I know for myself that it's easy to think about the life of faith as being a little bit of an individualistic one. We're probably all 
far more a product of our society than we'd like to admit. It's me and my walk with God, and Sunday just happens to be the day where I rub shoulders with other people on their walks with God. As a result, it's tempting to keep our praise to ourselves. If my faith is just a thing for me, why does anyone else need to hear about it? The picture that this psalm paints is a far cry from that. When we adore something, we praise it, and our praise overflows into telling other people about that. The picture the psalm paints is one of joyful adoration guiding people to worship. To quote C.S. Lewis again in his Reflections on the Psalms, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but also completes that enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. Fully to enjoy is to glorify. Right, so this is quite a nerdy example, if I'm honest, but I can vividly remember the night the trailer was released for the film Dune. Uh, I was reading the novel at the time, fully immersed in Frank Herbert's world. Now I get to see everything that I was reading about projected in glorious IMAX. I got so excited that after watching the trailer for another, you know, dozen or so times, I was filled with this near evangelistic sensation. I just had this urge to share this trailer with anyone who I thought would be interested in it, try and get them as excited as I was. And that's all a bit trivial and a bit silly, but it proved to me that our delight and enjoyment naturally makes us beckon others to praise the object of that delight and that enjoyment. It's not just joy and fear that defines the psalmist's worship. There's a third factor at play here. Notice the instruction tucked away at the end of verses 6 and 7. Sing praises to God, sing praises, sing praises to our King, sing praises. For God is the King of all the earth. Sing praises with a psalm. Have you ever wondered what the word psalm actually means? I'm sure many of us are quite familiar with it, but if you look at the footnote for verse 7, you'll see that in Hebrew, this is the word maskel which itself can be translated more directly to a song of wisdom or understanding. So there is joy, there's fear, there's also understanding and wisdom. The emotions of our praise, be they rapturous joy or reverent fear, should never misdirect us from getting to know the God that we worship. Our praise should engage both our hearts and our minds. And that's why the words we sing are so important. We shouldn't just seek out what's new for the sake of novelty or pursue tradition for tradition's sake. We shouldn't just use music to stir up superficial emotions on a Sunday evening that have vanished by Monday morning. We should be seeking the songs which use the type of language that we read in the Psalms. Words that unlock the character of God and guide our emotions towards him. Our praise is ultimately just a reaction to 
the great truths and deeds of the great king. Joy, fear, wisdom, and a call for others to join in. That's what it means to be the great king's praising people. So, why do we sing to God? We sing because the Lord, the Most High, is to be feared. A great king over all the earth. This is a king who is generous, just, and victorious. He defeated his enemies to secure a heritage for Israel and stepped into Israel's history as Jesus Christ to open up an eternal heritage for peoples of all nations. <coughs> he is the king who has ascended in triumph and will return in victory. And we, as his people, get to share in that victory, singing with him forever in the new creation. As we grow in wisdom and understanding of who this king is, our hearts are filled with fear, but also joy. And these emotions work in tandem to well up in our heart and pour out into praise. And remember, that praise isn't something we can just keep to ourselves either. Like it or not, people are going to hear you if you start singing. Our praise is both adoration of the king and an invitation for others to enter his kingdom and become his praising people. Amen. <laughs>